0: Revelation 14, as we continue to make our way through this book. And we are in the second vision in Revelation 14. If you're not with us last week, we are right in the middle of the seven visions section in Revelation 12 to 15. We started, well, we started a long time ago, didn't we? Way back before summer in chapter 12 with three terrible visions of Satan and his two beasts, this kind of unholy trinity. Last week we saw the first vision of chapter 14, which was a vision of heaven, this glorious picture of where our final destiny will be in Christ with the Lamb and His fair army. And today we have another very encouraging message from really three angels are going to give us the truth today and the encouragement is actually focused on judgment and hell. I know that Probably sounds like a contradictory idea, but I pray, I've been praying all week that we would see this as a a great encouragement tonight. So, Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13, is what we'll cover tonight. Let me remind you as we read this, this is the Word of our Lord. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second... "...followed, saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality." And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, "...if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath." "...poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name." Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, You are the Creator and Sustainer of all life. It was by Your sovereign Word that You spoke this world into existence. And by that same Word, You hold all things together. Father, we pray as we study Your Word tonight that we would be humbled, we would be encouraged. Father, that... As Chad prayed this morning, in Your wrath, as we study Your wrath and judgment, that You would show us and reveal Your mercy. So Father, please incline our heart to Your Word. Open our eyes that we may see and understand what Your Word has to say. Unite our hearts to fear Your name. And Father, satisfy us with Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever stopped to consider just how much judgment... There is in the Bible. It's a little staggering when you actually stop and think about it. I know we don't like to think about that, but just take Genesis for instance. You can't get more than just a few chapters in and what do you find? You find cataclysmic judgment as the fall happens and sin enters into this world and you see the devastation of that judgment for generation after generation. You probably remember as Chad was going through those genealogies, it got a bit ridiculous after a while. In Genesis 6, when it's like, so-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died, right? It's just the judgment is generational in that sense. Then you get to the flood, which we've been studying for a few weeks in Genesis 6-7. through You have more judgment as God wipes out every living thing on the earth because of sin. Save Noah and his family and some animals. This huge display of God's judgment. And we haven't gotten to it yet, but it's not that many more chapters before we see more judgment. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And the nations, the people are scattered across the earth. Their languages are confused as an act of judgment against their pride. Now we might assume, well, maybe this is just a Genesis thing. What about the rest of the Pentateuch? What about Exodus through Deuteronomy? Well, you can't get far into Exodus before you find what? terrible plagues judgment against pharaoh and all the gods of egypt then just go a little further and you see judgment against god's people for their own complaining and their own idolatry in the wilderness it's amazing because in exodus and leviticus god actually brings judgment into their sacrifices they're commemorating judgment they're looking back to judgment in the exodus Well, maybe it's not just Exodus. Maybe Joshua, Judges. Once they get to the Promised Land, things get better, right? Nope. (laughs) Wish I could say they got better, but it seems like they get worse. By the time you get to the end of Judges, if you've read those with your family, sometimes I'm kind of ashamed to read those verses at the end of Judges. It gets so bad in family worship. They get to a place where Israel has no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we think, well, then a king will fix it. And then we get a king. Saul's a terrible king. And then you get David. David, finally, a man after God's own heart who promptly commits adultery, maybe even rape. He betrays his nation. He murders someone. And it's his sin that really brings God's people even into strife and division and civil war for generations. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if David wasn't a man after God's own heart. It's kind of shocking when you think about it. What about the poetry section or the minor prophets? Again, filled with judgment. Lamentations over God's judgment. Calling out judgment upon God's enemies. Well, surely judgment is fixed in the New Testament, right? Jesus came to save us from the mean old judgmental God in the old, right? Wrong again. No one talked about judgment and hell as much as Jesus, not one prophet before Him. He talked about hell more than He talked about even heaven itself. And the disciples followed in his footsteps, warning the world of the judgment to come. See, when you really think about it, judgment is everywhere in the Bible. You can't even get to one page in Scripture without seeing some form of judgment. And amazingly, we are the generation that just doesn't want to hear it. Our world thinks that every kind of judgment is off limits. Judgment between each other, God judging us, it's not okay, it's evil. It's evil. And the church isn't much better. We can either say, well, God doesn't judge anyone because God is love. Or we act as the church as if we're kind of ashamed of God's judgment. It's in the Bible, but we really wish it wasn't. We really would like it not to be there, and we really don't want to talk about it. So we'll talk about it when we talk about the bad news, just so we can get to the good news. But we really don't want to think about it very well. Now, I know we think that these ideas are beneath us. Maybe even as you're listening, you're like, I would never do that. Sovereign Grace is a church that believes in judgment. You don't get the gospel without judgment. But I challenge you to look at your life. Do you ever avoid talking to people about judgment? Do you ever avoid calling out sins and what God thinks of sin in your friends and your believing people that you interact with and non-believers in your own heart? Do you ever run to passages on judgment for encouragement, for perseverance? You know, I think we don't want to admit it, but we are probably a lot more embarrassed by God's judgment than we even realize. Because God's judgment is supposed to be good news for the church. It's supposed to be a blessing for the church, for God's people. And this passage in Revelation gives us three reasons why. So first, I want to talk about God's judgment is merciful. God's judgment is merciful. That's the message of the first angel in verses 6 and 7. And then second, God's judgment is redemptive. In verse 8, that's the second angel. And then the last angel, God's judgment is just. And there is a final benediction at the end that we can see how to respond. So God's judgment is merciful, God's judgment is redemptive, and God's judgment is just. So let's look at verse 6 as we see God's merciful judgment. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Now you'll notice right away, this is a global message, isn't it? To every nation and tribe and language and people. It's a message that goes to the ends of the earth. And it's directed to who? Those who dwell on the earth. I hope you remember. That's almost like a technical term in Revelation. That's a term for the evil people in the world. The idolaters. Those who actually worship and serve creation rather than the Creator. Those evil earth dwellers. So this is a picture of the Gospel going to the ends of the earth to all the evil idolaters in the world. It's this angel that is symbolizing, almost personifying here, the role of the church to preach the gospel to every tribe, language, people, and tongue. And Jesus promised that this would happen before the end would come, before judgment would come on the world. He says this in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now the only question is, what gospel? It says in verse 6, it's an eternal gospel. What is that? Well, look at verse 7. He gives us a little bit of a hint. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. I bet some of you are probably thinking, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel I'm used to. I don't see Christ in any of that. No mention of the cross. The resurrection, no mention of eternal life. In fact, this really is only talking about judgment, isn't it? The focus is clearly judgment, but that doesn't mean that it's not about Christ. This is really a response to the eternal gospel. It says, fear God, give Him glory, worship and serve our Creator. And how do we do that? Well, we worship and serve the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, the one who made all things, both visible and invisible. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ, according to Paul in Colossians 1.15. And then a few verses later in Colossians one twenty, it says, Jesus reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we get a little limited view here of the gospel, a little taste with a specific emphasis, but this is the eternal immutable gospel in this sense it's a message that those who dwell on the earth those idolaters like me and like you can find refuge from their sin can be reconciled to god only through jesus christ because jesus is the only one to dwell on the earth and not fall into sin the only one to dwell and not worship the creation itself and then he died on the cross for the wicked taking on the wrath and the judgment that we deserve and rose from the dead so that those who trust in Him can escape the judgment to come. So who are those who fear God? It's those who behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians 4.6 says. It's those who look to Jesus, trust in Jesus as their refuge from the wrath that is to come. I know you're receiving a double dose of wrath and judgment today after we went through Noah as well. But this is the same message, isn't it? Now we see the focus here is on judgment. So you might be thinking, well, how is this merciful? How is this good news? And I want us to stop and think a little bit like Jonah for a second. We all remember Jonah, don't we? If you remember Veggie tells Jonah was a prophet, right? There you go. You know exactly what's going on. We remember Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Well, you remember when he went to Nineveh, And he preached the gospel to Nineveh. It was the weirdest sermon probably you've ever heard. Jonah stands up in front of all of Nineveh after all the drama with the fish. And he stands in front of them all and he proclaims, Jonah 3, 4, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Amen. That's the whole sermon. That's the gospel outreach sermon that Jonah preaches. Does that sound like the gospel? Doesn't sound like it to me. Jonah didn't quite get the gospel, it seems, in a lot of ways afterwards, but Nineveh sure did. You see what Nineveh heard with that? And it was probably a summary of a bigger message. But Nineveh really heard, judgment is in 40 days, we still have time to repent. All hope is not lost. We have another chance to glorify God. And so even when we're preaching a gospel that focuses on judgment, it is still incredibly merciful. Because God has every right to wipe out Nineveh without sending Jonah. He had every right during those 100 years that Noah is preaching to bring the flood earlier and not warn any of those people. He has every right to condemn us and to kill us off and send us to hell long before the Gospel ever gets to us. With no warning at all. He has every right to do that. But He warns us again and again and again through his word, through his word preached, through what we study as well. And God is saying over and over in this warning, look, don't fight me. Don't take me on. This is not a battle you can win. It's not over yet. You can still repent. Judgment is at your door. So repent. Trust me. And look, it's not a message, look, surrender, lay down your arms, become my slaves, you're going to hate it the whole time. That's not the message of the Gospel at the end of the day. Judgment is coming, but God is saying, repent and become my son. Repent and become part of my family through adoption. Repent and be sanctified. You'll become who I made you to be. I'm sure in a crowd this size. I know we've known each other for a long time, and and we know each other's lives really well. I'm sure a lot of us are here. We've heard this message again and again and again. But I often wonder, even though we hear it all the time, maybe we just ignore these warnings. Kids, I know you're growing up with this message. I did the same thing in a lot of ways. And it can be so easy to just kind of play the game, to say the right things, to do the right things. And as Chad mentioned this morning, to not really own it yourself, to put on a show, And to really assume at the end of the day, you know what, I'll clean my life up later. I'll repent because I have plenty of time. We presume upon God's grace. But we have no guarantee that we have one more breath. God sustains every single breath. And He's warning us now. Now adults, we presume on God's grace too as well, don't we? We probably do it for different reasons, I think. I don't think we often presume because we're so young and we have so much time to repent. I think we presume upon God's grace mainly because we think, you know what? God is forgiving. I've sinned this way many times. What's one more time? What's what's the big deal? God will forgive. He's done it so many times in my life. But God will not be mocked. He is slow to anger. But that eventually means He does get angry and wrath and judgment is coming. So we need to heed this warning. Recognize God's gracious, merciful call that judgment is on our doorstep and repent now. So why is judgment good news for believers? Because it's merciful in the way that God warns us. Second, God's judgment is redemptive. Look at verse 8 with me. Judgment is redemptive. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, Fallen is Babylon the Great. Now we are going to learn a lot more about Babylon in a few chapters. A very big description of it. But who is Babylon at this point? Well, you probably remember Babylon from the Old Testament. If you remember, this is the nation that oppressed God's people. God's people broke the covenant. They were kicked out of the Promised Land. And Babylon was the wicked nation that God chose to send them into exile. And they were oppressed for generations in Babylon. You can see all those stories in Daniel. But since then, Babylon has become the symbol of kind of the idolatrous city of the world. We might call it the system, right? Or we might call it the city of man, as opposed to the city of God. We actually saw a little bit of this not too long ago with the two beasts. If you remember the two beasts that waged war against the church trying to lure the church into sin, trying to seduce the church into sin, to foster a spirit of godlessness and evil both in the world and to entice the believers to follow into the world as well. You can see that goal in the rest of verse 8. Look at the rest of verse 8. She, that's Babylon, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is a pretty graphic picture of the wickedness of the world. A picture of Babylon that's really summed up what's going to be said in a few chapters. But you can see here, Babylon, the city of man, is driven by their passions. Don't you see that in our world? A drive for lust, greed, a drive to get the most out of pleasure, get the most power that we can possibly get. And idolatry and sin is just consuming our world. And this wine that they're drinking is actually a form of God's judgment already. You remember from Romans 1, verse 18, it says this, The wrath of God is revealed against those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what does that look like? So God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God says, I'm going to judge you by handing you over to your sin. Letting your sin destroy you, giving you your idols and letting them just destroy you from the inside out. So there's a spiritual adultery here and a physical adultery this is talking about. But the amazing part about this to me is that it's not like Babylon's just living it up and ignoring the church. Babylon here is evangelizing. Do you see that in the first part of the verse? She who made who? All the nations drink the wine passions of sexual immorality just like the message is going to all the nations of the church so is this wine this message this gospel of babylon which is be your own god do whatever you want the world is constantly preaching this to us do you recognize how much the world is preaching to you you see that there's a long time in my life where i hesitated to share the gospel Because I wanted to be the one that it would come across naturally. It wouldn't be forced. I didn't want to be awkward. I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want to be too pushy. I thought, well, I don't want to be those weird Bible thumpers you see in movies or TVs, right? I don't want to be that guy. And so I held back a lot of times until I realized my non-Christian friends had no problem preaching to me. No problem preaching to me about the merits and the blessings in their mind of their own sin. Saying things like, look, just escape your problems. Just run, run, run from your responsibility. Run to entertainment, run to drugs or alcohol or pornography. Spend your life consuming yourself with recreation, with fun. God will forgive. God will look past it, it won't really matter. Or maybe you've heard this message. Live for now. Live for checking things off your bucket list. Just one more vacation, one more experience. Live for building your own reputation. Lie, cheat, steal, do whatever it takes to get to the top. Because that's all that matters. The right now. You can run over anybody else on the way because all that matters is the right now. Or maybe you've heard this one. Take the easy way out. The right way is just too difficult. Yeah, it's a lot easier to sit down and not turn off that movie, that show that's garbage. That's garbage think, well, it's kind of funny, entertaining, so just leave it on. Adults, it's difficult to stay in a loveless marriage, isn't it? It's difficult to love an adulterous spouse, but it can honor the Lord. Kids, it's difficult to forgive a sinful parent, isn't it? That sin against you, that don't repent of their sins, it's easy to become bitter. It's easy to take the easy way out. All the time, Babylon is lying to us, seducing us, twisting God's truth to encourage us to run away from God and to run after the world, which is just really a chasing after the wind, isn't it? Now you might be thinking, well, where's the good news in this verse? Sounds horrible. Well, it's right back at the beginning of verse 8. Now that we know what Babylon is, look at what the beginning of verse 8 says again. Fallen. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. You see, just like Israel, when the Medes and Persians came in and destroyed Babylon, what did that mean for God's people? They rejoiced. Because they were free to return home. To go to the Promised Land. And what has Jesus done for us? Christ has redeemed us from Babylon. Redeemed us from the destruction, the city of destruction in this world with His life, death, and resurrection. He has opened wide the way to our heavenly home, the true promised land, freed us from the bondage of sin. We're no longer slaves to Babylon. We no longer have to drink this wine of sexual immorality and adultery. We can and will have freedom from our sin and from temptation in Christ. And look, I know there are times when it feels like Babylon is alive and well. Alive and well in my heart. In your heart and out there in the world. In those moments when temptation is strong, look to the cross. It's there that we see the redemptive judgment that this is proclaiming. Babylon, Babylon has fallen in Christ. Christ has freed us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And He's coming back again to finish His redemptive judgment. To free us from the presence of sin forever. So why is God's judgment good news for believers? Because it's merciful and it's redemptive in Christ. Third, look at verse 9 with me as we see God's judgment is just. This section is a bit of a heavy one, but let's walk through it together. Verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Let me just pause for a second. We remember what that is, right? It's not a physical mark on the forehead or on the hand. This is a spiritual mark of giving yourself to sin, giving yourself what Satan is preaching. In this context, it's drinking that wine of the passions of their sexual immorality. That's what he's talking about. And what does that lead to? Verse 10. He also will drink the wine... God's wrath. So there's another wine, another judgment, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is a terrifying verse when you really stop to think about it. Terrifying. The idea is picking up on wine in the ancient world was often diluted. It is today as well, right? We don't just drink, you know, all alcohol there. We drink some version of it, 10% or whatever. But in the ancient world, it was diluted. And what he's saying here is the wine that they drank before, God's judgment by turning them over to their sin, that was diluted judgment. That was weak judgment. In fact, if I'm reading this correctly, all judgment before this last judgment, God is saying, was diluted. The flood, the destruction of all life in this world, diluted judgment. The plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea, the judgment on God's people in the wilderness. The ground opens up and swallows people in the wilderness. Diluted judgment. The destruction of Israel by Babylon and all the atrocities that happened there. The destruction of Israel later by Rome. World War I, World War II, the Holocaust. The terrors of abortion in this world. Diluted Judgment. Compared to what's to come, weak judgment compared to the end. Look at the middle of verse 10. Those that receive this mark, that drink, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. You know, this gets at a misconception of hell that's important here. Hell is not the absence of God, God is everywhere present. But He's present in hell not to bless. With no mercy, only with judgment. So hell is in the presence of the Lamb here. And how long does it last? Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I know some of us may look at that and think, that seems a bit harsh. Seems a bit strong. I mean, I lie, I cheat. I've done some terrible things, but eternal torment almost seems cruel. And I know God's not cruel. Maybe this is just annihilation. Maybe this is just a picture of destruction. Hell will just wipe us from existence. That's what's happening here, right? The only problem with that is hell is described as eternal torment all over Scripture, not just in apocalyptic literature. It's prophesied that it will be eternal torment. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus Himself, in the parable that Chad read part of this morning in Matthew 25, with sheep and the goats, when He's speaking of the goats, do you remember what He says? Then He will say to those on the left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You know, I do hear some people say at times, Well, you know what? This is symbolic, right? Revelation, everything's symbolic. Everything is a metaphor. And to those that say that, I say, yeah. This is symbolic. This is a metaphor. But when do we use metaphors? When we run out of words to convey the seriousness of something. Just because it's a metaphor does not make it not real. This is symbolizing a far worse reality than we can possibly put into words. Hell is real and terrible and eternal. Worse than anything we can imagine. And that's really good news. I know that probably feels a bit shocking. Because to believers, to those that won't experience the wrath of God in hell, hell is the evidence that God is truly just. Have you noticed in our world it's almost impossible to get real justice, isn't it? It's really frustrating at times because just when you see, like, okay, this is going to be a punishment that fits the crime, you see sin and evil go ignored and unpunished all the time and excused in our world. We don't see infinite perfect justice anywhere in our world. But to sin against an infinitely valuable God deserves an infinite penalty, deserves perfect justice, and the only place. That we see that in creation is hell. You see, hell is almost like a promise to God's people that sin will not be ignored. That sin will not go unpunished. The wicked will not get away with it. Why? Because there's hell to pay. It's almost as if God is saying as He does in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. Why? For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's as if God is saying, Look, I've got this. Don't worry about it. The punishment will fit the crime. I know you've been sinned against. I know you've been hurt deeply by this world. You've been persecuted. Some of you may be killed. But God is saying here, Don't worry. I see it all, I hate it all, and I will punish it all perfectly in hell. That's good news. This side of heaven, if we're in Christ. Why is judgment good news? Because it's merciful, redemptive, and just. And how should we respond then? Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I think what John is doing here is he's pulling both visions together. Last week, with his vision of heaven and the destiny of the redeemed, and then this week, the destiny of those who are damned. The wicked. He's saying, look, this is where it's all headed. In light of all this, endure. Hold on to Jesus. Trust Him and obey. And then it says this, I heard a voice from heaven saying, now this is a new voice from heaven. It's not an angel anymore. I believe it's actually the voice of Jesus because it sounds a lot like the Beatitudes we were talking about. Listen to what he says. Write this. Blessed are the dead. How can death be a blessing? Isn't death judgment? For the wages of sin and death. He's saying death is a A blessing for those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Why? That they may rest from their labors. For their deeds will follow them. But God is saying for the wicked, they have taken advantage of My mercy. They have rejected My redemption in Christ. Through all the warnings, they have chosen justice. And there will be no rest, no peace, no joy for them eternally. For them, this evil world is as close to heaven as they will ever get. So I warn you, in the words of Christ here, repent. Trust in Jesus. Make Him your refuge. And for God's people, those who do trust and obey, who persevere in faith, then Jesus has taken the torment of hell that you and I deserve. Jesus has paid it all. Perfectly. There is nothing left to pay. And it would be unjust for God to send you here if you are in Christ. Because Jesus has paid it all. And all you have is eternal blessedness in God. True rest, it says here. Not the... Unrest of the wicked, but true rest and peace with God. God will forever be your God, and you will forever be his people. Do you realize this because of Christ. This world right now is as close to hell as you will ever get. It's the most judgment that's close to hell that you will ever taste. Oh, brothers and sisters, you ever need motivation to endure? Do you ever need motivation to not say that sin? Not do this thing? Not click on this? Not act this way? Do you ever need motivation and encouragement to fight temptation and to push back the evil voice of Babylon in this world? Then run to this passage again and again and again and see where that leads. See what's to come for the wicked and for those who trust in Christ and rejoice that in Christ... God's judgment is merciful, redemptive, and just in our lives. Fear God and give Him glory by taking refuge in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your warning. God, we can be so stubborn and stiff-necked and so unaware of the seriousness of our own sin. I pray, Father, that you would impress upon us the consequences of our sin, that we might feel the conviction and the weight of bearing your wrath, but then we might find great comfort and peace knowing that Christ has bore it for us, that he has paid for every single judgment that we deserve. Father, give us hope and peace. Help us to rejoice and the freedom and the hope and the blessedness we have in Christ. And may our lips never stop praising Your great name and preaching Your gospel to the ends of the earth so that many more may be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.